So this is uh, the sixth sermon in our series through Romans 8 this semester. Um, it's been really encouraging to kind of take a deep dive into uh, Romans 8. As I said when we first started, this is my favorite chapter of the Bible, and I hope you have seen by now kind of why that is, that there's so much there, so rich, so good. And, and this last sermon, this last section in Romans 8, um, really just puts a final exclamation point on all that we've talked about so far. So Romans 8 began with the message of no condemnation. There's no condemnation. And it will end with the message of no separation. No separation. No condemnation at the beginning and ending with no separation. And so just to kind of remind you where we've been, we did have the first uh, sermon on no condemnation because Christ has done, or God has done rather, in Christ what we could not do because of our weakened, sinful state. That He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sin offering. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that we might uh, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law as we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And in the second sermon, we looked at sort of asking the question, can you please God? Can humanity please God? Can you please God in your flesh? And we saw that the answer to that was no. That those who are in the flesh indeed cannot please God. They're not able. They cannot fulfill His law and keep His commandments. And we talked about this hostility between the flesh and the Spirit, particularly between the flesh and God, and how there's this opposition between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. And then we looked at a handful of things that are true if Christ is in you. If the Spirit of God indeed dwells in you, we looked at some of these markers of um, what that would look like. For example, that if the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And that... Uh, the Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, will also give life to our mortal bodies. As we die, we will be raised with Him. Um, and then we looked at this groaning for glory. That those who are filled with the Spirit, just because you're a Christian, doesn't mean that you get to escape suffering. That suffering is an inevitable part of life in this fallen world. That creation itself is groaning underneath a curse. Creation cries out as a woman in labor pains, waiting for this revelation of the sons of God. And that believers also groan in this. But even the Spirit Himself groans for us. When we don't know what to pray, when everything is so messed up that we can't even begin to think of how do I pray in this situation? We can have confidence that the Spirit Himself will intercede for us in groanings too deep for words. And two weeks ago, we looked at that golden chain of redemption that, that, that is linked all the way back in God's eternal decree that for those who he, uh, he foreknew, He predestined. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And we talked about the great hope there is in knowing that no one falls out of that chain. That if you've been called by God and you've been justified by God, you will not fail to be glorified by God, no matter what you face and what circumstances uh, come your way. And tonight we're going to set the capstone on all of that. And it begins with this. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, after all we've talked about, what, what shall we say to these things? How should we respond to these things? When we began Romans chapter 8, I said my, my hope is that this chapter would be like a comforting wrecking ball in your life. That it would demolish some things that maybe stand in your way to fuller joy in Christ. And that it would just wreck into your life and bring comfort and hope. And so tonight we'll be basically responding to the gospel of God's sovereign grace. What then shall we say to these things? What can possibly be more comforting 
than knowing with certainty that God is for us. That God is for us. So my goal tonight is for believers in Christ to leave with absolute confidence that God is for us. And the last paragraph of Romans chapter 8 is a list of rhetorical questions that are designed to drive deeply into our hearts the depths of the love of God for us in Christ. And so it is my hope and goal that the Spirit of God would do that very thing through His Word. So let's stand together as we read it. We'll be starting in verse 31 and read through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for this truth in your word. And we pray that as we open your word and as we seek to mine the truths that you have laid before us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that uh, we would receive what you have for us, that we might look more like your son Jesus when we're done. We pray this in his name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. So the title tonight is, If God is for us. If God is for us, what else is there? If God is for us. So we'll look at it in sort of um, three points. First, we'll kind of look at the proof. Like, how do you know God is for us? Like, just let's, we're going to state our case sort of positively. God is for us. And then next, we're going to answer the question, who can be against us? Who can be against us? And we'll look at two types of opposition um, that we could face as Christians and that we will face as Christians. And they'll be broken into sort of two smaller categories. Uh, one will be legal opposition and a lethal opposition. And then finally, we'll, we'll close with how we conquer. How do we conquer in light of this opposition? So, first point, God is for us. So the appropriate conclusion that you should come to after reading Romans chapter 1 through 8 is this. God is for us. If you've read it rightly and understood it rightly, you should walk away from this reading with the understanding and confidence that God is for His people. That we were saved by Him while we were still His enemies. Right? He didn't save us once we cleaned ourselves up or once we got on His good side. No, good side. No, He saved us while we were hostile towards Him. While we were enemies, He showed His love for us and He saved us. Great evidence that He is for us. He turned our hostility and hatred into joy and love. He turned our hostility and hatred into joy and love. And He has given us purpose even in our sufferings. He's not left us wandering through life aimlessly, but He shepherds us and He guides us. And He reminds us that even in our deepest pains and even in our deepest sufferings, 
that, that he is with us and he is doing something good and glorious through it all. And so this is the evidence throughout this book so far that God is for us. And once we've established that truth that God is for us, the, the answer is who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And, and as I was looking at this, kind of thinking of the right way to structure this sermon, I was kind of thinking about that. Who can be against us? Obviously, we have the opposition that we'll get to in a minute. And, and there might be a little bit here um, in this passage of a hypothetical situation that God might fail. Not that God's necessarily against us, that he, but he might be for us, but not faithful to complete it. And so um, in the last little bit here in verses um, 31 um, and following, we see Paul kind of setting up possible ways in which things could go bad, which things could go bad. But, but first, he reassures us that God is indeed for us and that he will be faithful to the end. Okay, So even if you think that, okay, God is for us, I see that, but will he be faithful to the end? Will he fail me in some way? And Paul starts, before getting into opposition, he starts by showing us that, that that's not going to happen. That we have all the proof that we need that God will be faithful in that. So what is that proof? What is the proof that God will be faithful to the end? And it is this. He did not spare his own son. He did not spare his own son. Look at, look at that verse for me, verse 30, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you want proof that God will be faithful? That God is going to do what he promised? The proof should be in the cross. That he gave his son and he did not spare his son. In verse 32 there, there's actually a missing word in the ESV. Uh, this, this, that is in the underlying Greek text. And it's just two letters. So it's the emphatic article, ge. Sounds very earth-shattering, right? Ge. But what that ge is, is it's an emphatic, emphatic article that means something like indeed or, or surely. It's, it's emphasizing something. So it literally reads like this. He who indeed his own son did not spare. So Paul's emphasizing the fact that this, the, the one who did not spare his own son is who we're talking about. That's who is uh, for us, and we know that he'll be faithful. And in the Greek language, word order matters more than it does in English um, in terms of emphasis. When we think of word, word order, sometimes if we put words in a specific order, or if we don't put them in a specific order, it doesn't make as much sense. In Greek, you can say things, you can say the same thing several different ways in the word order. It doesn't matter as much. And so you can kind of use that and put what you want to emphasize up front. You kind of front load what you want to emphasize in the sentence. So if you notice the, the English translation, he who did not spare his own son, that sounds, that makes more sense to us. He who did not spare his own son. But if you look at the word order in the Greek, it's he who indeed his own son did not spare. You see, that, that sounds a little bit like Yoda to us, right? But the emphasis here, this, this, you have the emphatic article as well as the word order that is saying it. He did not spare his son. He didn't spare his son. And if he didn't spare his son, how will he not then just give us everything else? If he's given us his own son. There's a parallel here with Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. In Genesis chapter 22, this is the example uh, where um, Abraham is offering his son Isaac. Y'all remember this? God was to, to test Abraham. He tells him to go and offer his son Isaac 
as a sacrifice. And remember, he had promised to Abraham that through Isaac, he would have many descendants. And now he tells him to go and to kill the only son of his flesh, of his wife, Sarah, the son of the promise he is to offer as a sacrifice. And God was doing this to test the faithfulness of Abraham. And in verse 12, God, you know, he stops him. So Abraham, he picks up the knife. He's going to slay his son and God stops him. And then God says this, For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. How did God know that Abraham feared God? Because he did not spare his son. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the early church, it uses the same language that Romans 8 uses here. It actually says, you have not spared your son, your beloved, on account of me. So the, 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 the Hebrew text that we use today says, you have not withheld your son. But the, the Greek text says, you have not spared your son, your beloved, on account of me. Of me. So what Paul is pointing out here and what we should be kind of thinking about in this passage is if, if it was enough, if Abraham's willingness to not spare his own beloved son was enough for God to consider Abraham faithful. In other words, that God could trust Abraham that he was going to be faithful. If that was enough for God, and Abraham is a fallen sinner, how much more should it be enough for us to trust that God will be faithful to his promises in that he did not spare his own son? Do you see that? And so we know without a shadow of doubt that God is for us because he didn't spare his own son the son whom he loved, but he gave him up for us all. He gave him up for us all. This should remind us of John 3, 16, right? God loved the world. God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. He gave to us. And if he has given us his son, why would he not also give us all things with him. That's the logic. So God is for us and there's no doubting his faithfulness to bring his good work to its completion in you. He will be faithful. So now Paul moves on from this. We've set the foundation as if setting the foundation in chapters 1 through eight wasn't enough. He reminds us that God gave us his son once again. Then he moves into these two types of opposition that we will inevitably face as Christians and then compares each to the work of God um, on our behalf in that specific um, area, in that specific area. You'll see what I mean as we go on. So we'll look at these answers. Who can be against us? Well, Clint, a lot of people are against us, right? Have you not paid attention to church history? Have you not scrolled Twitter? There's a lot of people who are against us. What do you mean saying no one can be against us? There's a lot of people who are against us. And so Paul sets up these two kind of categories of opposition that we will face but then he compares that opposition to what God has done for us in those specific areas. So the first um, type of opposition he sets up is a legal opposition, a legal opposition. He begins with accusation, accusation. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is the, the, the picture that we'll see here in the next verse or two is the, the picture of a law court. That, that we're in the heavenly courts and here comes this prosecutor into the room to bring a charge against God's elect, to bring an accusation against God's elect. And he answers, it is God who justifies. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And this calls us back to a major theme that was established earlier in the book, that theme of justification. And we in that discussion in chapters really kind of three um, through five, looked at how this justification works by faith alone in Jesus Christ, how we receive his righteousness imputed to us and our sin and our guilt is imputed to him and he pays that penalty and that God, the just, looks on us. I mean, looks on Christ instead of us and declares us just, declares us righteous, declares us innocent. And so Paul's logic here is who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, if God, the just judge, has declared innocent those whom he has foreknown from before the foundation of the earth, earth, which means he knows everything about you, everything you've done, everything you've thought about doing. He knows all of that. And if he has known all of that and has still declared you innocent, who is there that can question his judgment? So when someone brings an accusation against a Christian, against the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, whose sins have been forgiven, what they are doing is questioning the judgment of God Almighty. This God, Isaiah um, records from this God who says in verses 14 through 17 of Isaiah chapter 40, says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You see, Isaiah says, God is the one who scooped out the, the depths of the ocean and, and, and held it in his hands. That he measured out the heavens with, the, with a span, which is the length between your thumb and your pinky. He's the one who created all things and upholds all things. And then who is going to come around and question his judgment? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This covers both human and demonic accusation. Human and demonic accusation. This is the type of accusation that is really most often found in your own conscience, in your own inner dialogue with yourself, where your, your conscience condemns you. And satanic, demonic forces, knowing that you have a guilty conscience, tempt you to doubt, tempt you to think that you are too sinful to be saved, tempt you to believe that maybe none of this is real to begin with. It also includes human accusation from outside of yourself, from those who would come on and say, you hypocrite. You're a Christian and you do sinful things. You know, so here's how you respond to that. Do, do you know what the, the chief doctrine of Christianity is? God saves sinners. So it is not a newsflash to me that I am a sinner, right? And so this handles that type of human accusation as well, but also that demonic accusation, that accusation that is severe and oppressive, the type of accusation. Did you know that, that Satan is referred to as, as an accuser? the accuser of the brother. Like Satan's chief identity is to be an accuser. To bring your sin against you, not to lead you to repentance, but to lead you to despair and to lead you away from God, to lead you to run and hide outside of Christ. But Christ silences the accusers, all of them. 
And if Christ has silenced the accuser, and if God the just, as we sing, if God the just is, to, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, then, then I am too. <laughs> I'm satisfied that God is satisfied to look on Christ in my place. The next opposition that's related to this accusation is condemnation. Condemnation. Who is to condemn? He asks. So if somehow an accusation manages to slip through, how in the world would you be condemned? Because Christ Jesus died and was raised for all your sins. And he is now at the right hand of God. And another emphatic word here, and is indeed there interceding for us. Jesus bore your condemnation. That's why the chapter began with there is no condemnation. He bore it on the cross and buried it in his grave. And then he was resurrected out of that grave. I like in, um, here in verse, what verse is it? Verse 34. How in the ESV, there's the little, um, I don't know what you call this, the little dash thing, parenthetical thing. Um, where it's almost like Paul forgot something or he was correcting himself, where he goes, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Wait, more than that was race. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but it's, wait a second, it's even better than that. He didn't just die, but he was raised. And is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if Jesus simply died and remained in his grave, then we are all wasting our time here tonight because there would still be condemnation. There would still be condemnation for our sin. Why do we say that? Because his resurrection demonstrates that the atonement was truly made. It's vindication of who Jesus is. It's proof of the efficacy of his death. God raised up Jesus the scripture says, because death could not hold him, because he was sinless. But God raised him up in order to demonstrate that the debt has been paid, that the atonement has been satisfied, and that Jesus is the first fruits of that type of resurrection. You see? that all those who are in Christ will be raised from their graves because Jesus' death was effectual. It accomplished its purpose. And so there is no one to condemn. There, there, it's all been taken care of. It's been paid. And God has done all of this because He loves us. He's done all of this because he loves us. One of, the, one of the things that has been surprising to me, studying through Romans for the past year uh, in this very intentional way and trying to go at it a little faster than I normally would, has been seeing how much, even in the book of Romans, there is an emphasis on this love of God and, and I mean that more than just God loves you. I mean that by the love that God is. The love between Father, Son, and Spirit. This love that makes up His being. How much that just permeates all of this Scripture. And it's because God loved us. He demonstrated that love for us in the sending of His Son whom He loves. And he sent his spirit to make us willing and able to love him while we were hostile towards him. So the whole thing is about reuniting us in this love of God. Indeed, that's how it ends, right? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He does this because he loves us. 
So there is no legal opposition that can be levied against God's elect. And if that doesn't work, the enemies of God are prone to use another tactic. They threaten your life. In other words, if, if the enemies of God can't call you a hypocrite, can't call you names, or can't use your guilty conscience against you, they're going to go with another weapon. They're going to threaten your life and your livelihood. And that's the second type of opposition that uh, Paul points us to. Um, and I just call it a lethal opposition because I couldn't resist the rhyme. Legal and lethal. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? I'm sorry, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let me be very specific there. The love of Christ. Then he goes on to list. Um, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He lists out these things that are severe tribulations that threaten to separate us from the love of Christ. So the fear of death is real. Is it not? It is real. And Hebrews 2.15 speaks of um, the fear of death as being this uh, chief weapon in the devil, devil's arsenal. That, that it's through this fear of death that we've been made subject to lifelong slavery. Right? Apart from Christ, of course. But in our flesh, as fallen, um, as fallen sinners, we're subject to lifelong slavery because of this fear of death that the devil uses against us. And you can control anyone who fears death. You can control anyone who fears death. And if you fear death, you can be controlled by anyone. I don't think we quite understood this in very much until 2020. I think we got a little more understanding when we actually feared death for a moment. We, we saw the, the shutdowns. We saw the, the masking mandates that made absolutely no sense. We saw strapping, healthy young men walking down a sidewalk with no one within a half mile of them with a mask on. Why? Because they feared death. They feared death. We were told to do things that we thought we would never do because we feared death. I remember, guys, we set our groceries outside in the grass and let the sun shine on them for a, some amount of time before we brought them inside. I look back at that and it's like, that is hilarious. <laughs> but we did it. I remember driving home thinking, like, all right, I gotta pump gas. I'm about to die. I gotta leave my kids and my wife or are they gonna die too? You know, And so we had to kind of come to grips with this reality that, hey, we're, our lives are mortal, that we're fragile, and then we're weak. And then those who love power realized that we were realizing that, then they laid their thumbs down on the, on the, the button. How far can we take this thing? Right? Can we get them to shut down their churches? Can we get them to stop singing in their churches? So you can control anyone who fears death. And for this reason, persecution is a common experience of the church in all generations. Some more severe than others, but it's persecution nonetheless. Which is why he quotes Psalm 44 um, in the passage. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you want to look that up, that's Psalm 44, 22. And so in an attempt to control the church, in an attempt to shut it down, to stop this message of the gospel, there is this inevitable threat of violence, this, this threat of your life or your livelihood that, that comes against you. Jesus says in John 15, he says, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
simple. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And then he has some very simple logic here that should be comforting to you in the midst of persecution, by the way. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you see that? The same Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because that's a sure sign that you are of the world. Because if you are of the world, they will love you as their own. But because Christ is not of the world and he chose us out of the world, therefore the world hates us. Christians, because it hated him first. Jesus says in verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But what's the, here's the question. How did that work out for them? When they persecuted Jesus, when they falsely accused him, when they called him a hypocrite, when they, they, they levied all these false charges against him, rigged up a false trial, executed him, shut him down for good, embarrassed him and all his followers. How'd that turn out for them? It was in that very act that the scripture says that they, the rulers and authorities were put to open shame and that God triumphed over them in Christ. It was in that death of Christ that the actual decisive victory of Christ was made. Which is why Jesus says in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So we follow a persecuted Savior who was persecuted all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he went into that grave and he came out resurrected and glorified. And so will you. This takes away that lifelong fear of death. What are you going to do? Kill me? You just send me to heaven faster. Right? There's a, there's a song we sing at Perimeter that says, that says the, uh, the worst that can happen is shortens the journey and hastens me home. That, that gives us a confidence and not a swagger. It's a humble confidence. It's a confidence of bearing that cross and, and not reviling back while you're reviled because you know in that weakness, in that death, you're becoming a conqueror as you follow the chief conqueror. The servant is not greater than his master, but we share in the reward. So don't fear death. Don't fear death. If you fear death, if you fear death and you hear me say this and you're like, that's easier said than done, buddy. It's like, yeah, I know it is. What do you do? What do you do to overcome this fear of death? You meditate on this gospel and here's something very practical. Read church history. Pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, read a book or watch a movie called The Insanity of God. familiarize yourself with the stories of the martyrs of the faith. You have brothers and sisters who have been mauled by lions, attacked by bears, who have been burned at the stake, and they did so while singing hymns and singing psalms, who helped light the fires. And you share the same spirit. And you read that story and you go, I could never do that. I guarantee you they would have said the same thing. 
when, when, before it happened to them. But the Spirit will give us strength. And if they can do that, we can face being like ridiculed. We can, we can be put in Facebook jail for 30 days. Right? Seriously? We can, right? If you haven't gone to Facebook jail, and I haven't been yet, maybe I should try harder. <laughs> Are you really being faithful if I'm on Facebook if you've not been to Facebook jail? It's when they suspend your account for, for not uh, following the truth speak. Yeah. They suspend your account or either like push you down in the feed for 30 days. Because you don't. I think so. Oh, yeah. That was a thing that we used to get on, a social media thing that we used to get on back in the day before uh, Snapchat, Be, Be Real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Instagram's grandpa. Yeah, that's what Facebook is. Yeah, so Moses was in the bull rushes. Okay, where were we at? Facebook, conquerors. Here we go. In the world, you will have tribulation, right? But Jesus has overcome the world, and he overcomes the world through what looks like defeat. Okay? So here's the point. It, if your attempt to overcome the world and to be a suffering servant for Christ comes when you're trying to be a king, you're probably going about it the wrong way, and you're probably getting persecuted because you're a jerk. But if your suffering for Jesus comes because you're walking in weakness while upholding the truth, then you are actually becoming a conqueror. Does that make sense? So Jesus has overcome the world and its powerful threats. He has conquered and has made us more than conquerors. And so this is that last point. Uh, Paul's answer to the question, shall all these tribulations and legal and lethal oppositions separate us from the love of Christ? His answer is no. No, actually, it is in all these things that we overwhelmingly conquer. This is that suffering, triumphing through weakness thing that I was talking about. We aren't simply not separated from Christ by persecutions and sufferings, but we actually conquer the enemy in them and through Christ. Let me, let me try to repackage that a little bit. The good news isn't that Christ is just with us while we're suffering. That's true, but that's not it. The point is, yes, Christ is with us and we're never separated from him in our persecutions and sufferings, but it's actually the strategy to win. It's actually the strategy to win. How did Jesus defeat the evil powers? Through his death, the cross. And so we follow the same way. We conquer in the same way. And he says that we overwhelmingly conquer or we are more than conquerors. So we need to talk about this phrase, more than conquerors. Um, this is three words in the English that is just one word in Greek. It's one word in Greek. It's actually a verb. So in English, more than conquerors, that kind of makes you think it's like it's an identity. It's a noun, more than conquerors. But it's actually a verb in the Greek. It's, it's hypernikao. Hypernikao, which means something to the effect of overwhelmingly conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. Uh, nikao is the verb to, con to conquer, or to have victory. Uh, you know this word uh, from Nike. Nike, the victor, victory. Uh, this is the same word. This is the, Greek, it's the, the, the verb form of Nike. And so we don't just barely conquer the enemy. Like we don't just suffer and die and then keel over and just, whew, we won that one in the, you know, in the last minute by one point. Right? No, you overwhelmingly conquer. You hyper conquer. You hyper conquer. We'll talk about that just a little bit more. So how do we hyper conquer? How do we hyper conquer? Actually, I'm going to back up a second. I'm going to explain that a little more. How do, what do we mean by hyper-conquer? 
this word, um, hypernikao, is a here's a here's a fancy word for you, hapax legomenon. Hapax legomenon. It means a word that happens once. Uh, and so, is this word is only used in scripture in this place. And I did some digging to try to find it in extra biblical. Greek writing. I couldn't find it anywhere. So it kind of seems like Paul just made up a word right here. And so which makes me happy because people laugh at me for making up words all the time. And so it, it seems like what Paul's saying is like he's trying to say we conquer, but like super conquer. That's how I would say it. Right. We, we, we don't tend to put like hyper. Like we do sometimes, like we talk about like in theology, like hyper Calvinism is like someone who takes a Calvinism like to the extreme or over and beyond or, or just, um, you know, things like that. Uh, but we tend to put super in front of things like that. That pull of pork was super good. It wasn't just good. It was super good. So Paul's saying that, that we are super conquerors in him. You, 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 conquer overwhelmingly over the top it's that's what that is and so how do we do that how do we super conquer how do we hyper conquer how do we overwhelmingly conquer how are we more than conquerors see there's all these ways that we can say it we do it through him who loved us we do something See, this is why I think it's important to preserve that verbal context of the more than conquerors, because it's not our identity. It's what we do with an identity in Christ. You see, it's we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. Through him, not through us, through him. We conquer through Christ. So the only way you come out on the other side of lethal opposition or legal opposition is if you are in Christ, if you do so through him, because he is the ultimate conqueror himself. He's the ultimate conqueror of death. And so if we conquer through him as he conquered, then we must answer the question, how did Christ conquer? How did Christ conquer? And for that, let's read a passage. Let's turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Oops. I'll leave that there. Revelation chapter 5. If you're not familiar with kind of how the flow of Revelation... This is, this is at the beginning of John's vision. He's given this vision where he's sort of brought up into heaven to, to see what's going on um, there. He's around the throne of God. He's witnessing this angelic worship that's going on. And then this sort of pivotal moment happens where um, there's this scroll that comes in the picture. Uh, and we see later through the book of Revelations that every time a seal is popped off this scroll like things happen on earth and so this is a very pivotal moment in the book of revelation and a pivotal moment in redemptive history and here's what it says uh, let's read verses um, actually i'm gonna read verses one through ten i'm gonna start at the beginning it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So how did Christ conquer? He conquered when he was slain. When he ransomed people from God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. As I alluded to earlier, Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Him, in the cross. And this triumph is an already not yet type of thing. Christ has conquered, He is conquering, and He will conquer. In fact, at the end of the book of Romans, when we get there, we'll read that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under whose feet? Your feet. The church. So we will be hyper-conquerors as we crush Satan beneath our feet. And how do we do that? So if we fast forward in Revelation to chapter 12, we see this. There's this war in heaven. And I'll just read this bit here, starting in verse 10. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Listen to this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Man, that's such a good passage. The accuser, the one who brings a charge against God's elect, he's cast down and they conquered him with what? The blood of the Lamb who was slain and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. When you're in Christ and you love Him more than you love your own life, you hyper-conquer. And nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. Because God makes all things work together for your good. Paul says in verse 38, he says, For I am sure, I am sure, patho, convinced, I am sure of this. I am convinced of this. Because if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And we'll close with uh, Charles Spurgeon's commentary on being more than a conqueror. How do, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Spurgeon says this. He says, now this is being more than a conqueror. When weakness overcomes strength, when brute force is baffled by gentleness and love. This is victory indeed. When the little things overcome the great things. When the base things of this world overthrow the mighty. And the things that are not bring to naught the things that are. Yet this is just the triumph of grace. He goes on to say, He is more than a conqueror, because he loses nothing, even by the fight itself. When a battle is won, at any rate, the winning side loses something. In most wars, the gain seldom makes any recompense for the effusion of blood. But the Christian's faith, when tried, grows stronger. His patience, when tempted, becomes more patient. His graces are like the fabled Antaeus, 
who when thrown to the ground sprang up stronger than before by touching his mother earth. For the Christian, by touching his God and falling down in helplessness into the arms of the Most High, goes stronger by all that he is made to suffer. He is more than a conqueror because he loses nothing even by the fight and gains wondrously by the victory. More than conquerors, I hope, this day, because they have conquered their enemies by doing them good, converting their persecutors by their patience. To use the old Protestant motto, the church has been the anvil and the world has been the hammer. And though the anvil has done nothing but bear the stroke, she has broken all the hammers as she will do to the world's end. And in this we are more than conquerors. That even in the fight, we're made stronger. Even in the sufferings, God's purpose for us is accomplished. So you literally can't lose. You literally cannot lose. And what a great image to end on. The church has been the anvil and the world the hammer. And though the anvil has done nothing but bear the stroke, she has broken all the hammers as she will do to the world's end. When you're founded on the rock of Christ, you can withstand the blow, and the blow makes you stronger. And in this we are more than conquerors. So in conclusion, all of this hope is grounded firmly in the eternal love of the triune God. To follow me through this passage as we seek to demonstrate this. Verses 31 through 32. God's being for us is demonstrated in the giving of His beloved Son. Verse 33, this giving of the Son justifies God's elect, those whom He foreknew. And we remember last week, or not last week, last time we were in Romans 8 together, we talked about this foreknowing as an intimate knowledge. It's a, it's a setting of a love upon someone. Verse 35 Tribulations can't separate us from what the love of Christ. Verse 37, we hyperconquer through him who loved us. And verse 39, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we close Romans 8, know this, that to separate those who belong to Jesus from the love of God you'd have to sever the eternal love between Father, Son, and Spirit. God's love for you is that sure. You'd have to disrupt the triunity of God. In other words, you'd have to destroy God Himself. And therefore, you can be sure, you can be convinced, Christian, that God is for you. And if God is for you, who could possibly be against you? So go and live, Coram Deo. Live before the face of your God who is for you. Knowing that He is the one who holds the heavens and the earth in the palm of His hand and that He is your God and He is for you. When your conscience or your enemy brings accusations and condemnation for your sin, remember that it is your God who is for you who justifies that it is Christ Jesus who died and was raised for your justification and that He now intercedes for you at His Father's right hand in heaven. And don't fear persecution. Don't love your life, for in trying to keep your life, you will ultimately lose it eternally. But if you lay down your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it eternally. So resist temptation. Stand for God's truth. Fight your sin and persevere to the end. And finally, weep no more. For the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. And he is for us. Let's pray. Oh God, what hope we have in your son. We thank you that you are for us and that you gave your Son for us. 
even when we were against you, when we were hostile to you, that you loved us first. And if you had not loved us first, then we would still have refused you. So we thank you for your eternal triune love that is set upon us in your Son and brought to us by your Spirit. And God, we pray that we would rejoice in it, that, that we uh, here tonight would be a people who rejoice in your love, who extend your love to others, who extend your love to those who are still in their sin and are still hostile. That we would extend this love at great risk to ourselves. That we would take up our cross, that we would endure slander and accusations and mockery in order to uphold your truth. In a world who loves darkness, would we shine the light of your love? And God, when these oppositions face us, when we inevitably fulfill this task, will you draw near? Will you make us more than conquerors as we triumphed as Christ triumphed? As we love not our lives, but we lay them down for the good of others and ultimately for your glory that Christ would be seen in us and that he would be magnified in word and deed. We pray this in his name. Amen.